You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 46. You can follow along as we read Psalm 46 together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We do have Redemption Hill kids for ages two to four and grades one to three. And once they've slipped out, you may be seated. Good morning. Sean had mentioned last Sunday that uh, last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, and it was. And I'm not going to let it pass by so easily. We are going to come in the back door this morning and honor one of God's great instruments, an an unlikely instrument, a man by the name, a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, who was God's man for the hour in the Protestant Reformation, which exalted the doctrine that Luther said the church stands or falls with, the doctrine of justification by faith. And so today we stand sandwiched between the 540th birthday of Martin Luther, which is on November 10th, this Friday, in the year of 1483. And we look back at Reformation Day, which occurred on October 31st of 1517, a day in which Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the doors of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
and set off an international firestorm. In response to the the 95 Theses, Pope Leo implemented a papal bull called Exerge Domine, which literally means arise, O Lord, for there is a boar who has invaded your vineyard. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. And subsequently, the head of the Roman Catholic Church burned Luther's books, and he was summoned by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, to the Diet of Worms in 1521. It was there that they, in a sense, put Luther on trial for all of his writings, and he was called upon to recant his writings. And as Hollywood would tell you in their version, because Luther, when asked what he would say to them on the way to the Diet of Worms, where he would appear before all of these leaders and men and theologians, he said, previously, I said that the Pope was the vicar of Christ. I will now declare him to be the adversary of Christ. And in Hollywood's version, you see Luther march in there and declare to them, unless I am convicted with, by Scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive to, by the Word of God. On this I stand. But that's not how it went. For as he stood there in the center of the room with all of his books around him on the table, they asked Martin Luther, will you recant these teachings? And you could barely hear him utter the words. But in that moment of trial and testing, he said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And so they granted him clemency, and he was locked in a room, and over that overnight... Martin Luther, whose psalm, whose psalm 46 was his favorite psalm, I believe became the inspiration for this great prayer that he prayed in this dark moment in his life. Listen to this. I'm going to highlight some of the words. He said in that cell, in loneliness and despair, O God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold, how its mouth opens up to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The nail is struck. Sentence is gone forth. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, thou my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech you. Thou shouldest do this by thy own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. He goes on. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost but hide thyself. 
Thou hast chosen me for this work, I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my fortress. Do you see the seeds of the writing of that great hymn that we just sang? Do you see it? And in, in his darkest days, he, he went back to Psalm 46. Well, Hollywood's version did happen. The very next day, as he stands before the council, he is asked again, do you recant these teachings? And Luther responds, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason." I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to do so is to go against conscience, which is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God, help me. And the rest is history. And so we see, even in Lucas's darkest moments, the importance of even a psalm like Psalm 46 in his life as he stood against the, the world and the dreadfulness of the world. Now, we may not have a dramatic moment like that, but and in, sometimes it's just tough to get through a week where we're at. Or what do you do? Where do you turn when you get that unexpected phone call in the middle of the night? Or you're in a health crisis and you're waiting on the results of some major medical test. I tell you this. This is why I love the Psalms. And I love Psalm 46, Luther's favorite psalm. And I need Psalm 46 in my life. The great scholar, Luther, the Lutheran scholar, H.C. Leupold, said this, Few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord in the midst of very real dangers as strongly as this one. And so we need to understand the background, the, the occasion of this psalm, Psalm 46. And so just real briefly, I want to bring out the fact that this psalm, according to many commentators, according to, to many scholars, was written during the reign of one King Hezekiah. And if you remember that period of time, it was between 715 and 686 B.C. where you had the threat of the Assyrians in the background. In fact, in 722 B.C., they have already taken out the northern kingdom of Israel. And so some would even argue that Hezekiah could have possibly written this psalm because he was a man acquainted with much adversity. He was the 14th king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in his own life, he suffered the diagnosis of a terminal illness and he had to navigate the threat to the north. And in the annals of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, you had one wicked king after another, but occasionally 
you had a righteous king, and Hezekiah would have fit that mold. In fact, in his first year, he implemented major spiritual reforms, instituting the Passover, reinstituting the Passover, bringing reforms to the temple. He eliminated idolatry in the high places. In fact, he destroyed the bronze serpent. If you remember, that's the, the bronze serpent was what Moses lifted up at his time, and it became the source of idolatry, and he destroyed it. So he was a righteous king. And so this is the background from which this psalm is written. And I have three major points. There are three stanzas. And my three points are these. Number one, God is a refuge who can be trusted. And number two, God is a warrior who will defend his people. And number three, God is sovereign and will vindicate his name. So let's start in verses 1 through 3. The first stanza, God is a refuge who can be trusted. And I, I note here that, it, that the psalm itself begins with God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And it ends in God, with God. God of, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice the language there that Luther appealed to when he named his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in two places here, in the two refrains, it says that the God of Jacob is our fortress. And you may say, well, that's pretty obvious. And yet, in our day and age, as one writer has written, it is this God, majestic and holy, who has disappeared in the modern evangelical world. Somehow, someone can use all of the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center is fundamentally the self. And so we need to see the supremacy of God here. We need to see that everything revolves around God himself, the God-centeredness of the Psalms. God is the center of all things. He is exalted supreme above all things. God must be the main thing. He is the main thing in life because he is the main thing in the universe. Because he created the universe. He directs the universe and he sustains it. Romans eleven thirty six says, from him and through him and to him are all things. God is the main thing. And he invites us and enthralls us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. Namely himself. Notice God alone is our refuge. Running elsewhere is a vain hope. That word refuge has the idea of a shelter or protection from danger, from difficulty, a safe haven in the midst of the storms of life. It is one of my favorite metaphors, and it is the second most used metaphor to describe God in all of the Psalter. The first metaphor is God is king, but God alone is our refuge and David describes this refuge in Psalm 61 in the context of a strong tower in which we can run to 
He describes it in terms of the shelter of God's wings, which we hide under. It, is, it permeates the Psalms. And, and Luther, in his hymn, we, we sang it, he describes God as this mighty fortress, a bulwark in trouble in the very first stanza. And we must note the personalization of this idea. It is not just that, that God is a refuge, but that God is our refuge. It is not enough to just give mental assent to the reality that God is a refuge. Is He your refuge? Is He your refuge this morning? It is not enough just to sing on Sunday that God is a refuge, but throughout the week, through the normal mundane of life, is God your refuge? It must be personalized. For David, it was personalized. In Psalm 18, listen to this language. In Psalm 18, verse 2, this is how personal it is for David. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. And my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God invites us this morning to know him in this way, to know him personally. The God of the universe, the God who created the universe, invites us. And he is a refuge who can be trusted. And if you will run to him in times of weakness, you will find strength. You will find mercy and grace in time of need. Notice in Psalm 46, it says he is a very present help in trouble. Not from trouble, but in the midst of trouble. We are not promised a trouble-free life. And so in those times, in those seasons, God is a refuge who can be trusted, as Luther said, a bulwark in trouble and not from trouble. Look at verses 2 and 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling pride. Here you have a picture of cataclysmic events of nature, extraordinary events that show chaos. God is our help even if the worst imaginable calamities should come on us. The psalmist imagines a return to chaos. The earth gives way and mountains fall into the heart of the sea. A reverse, a total reverse of the third day of creation. And I, I think it serves as a metaphor for the times in which we live today. For we are living in times where Western civilization is slipping into the heart of the sea. 
There is no moral clarity on anything. Insanity is the rule of the day. And we've seen this in recent weeks. We cannot even condemn terrorism, barbaric terrorism. And October 7th, we saw the face of incomprehensible evil when Israel was invaded by Hamas and barbaric terrorists who inflicted their hell upon women and children and slaughtered many Israelites. More Jews died in that day, in any one day, since the Holocaust. And what is paraded before our very eyes today is young people on our esteemed universities and campuses rallying in support of this and in against the right of Israel to defend itself. These are insane times. You are seeing it. And I, as a parent and as a grandparent, am concerned about the country that they will grow up in. The storm clouds are not coming. We are in the midst of the storm. So where do you turn? Where do you turn in that hour? Who is your refuge in that time? God is a refuge who can be trusted. Sometimes it's just the foundations of our own worlds. They're shaken. Many of you have experienced great loss. We have as well in recent years. And I'm right, reminded of the words of Elizabeth Elliot, who was a missionary in Ecuador, who lost a husband radically on the mission field. He was slaughtered by the very people he was trying to reach with the gospel. And then subsequent to that, she watched a second husband slowly consumed by cancer. In relating these experiences, she said, Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. Martin Luther, we sang it earlier, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Beware of false paradigms that says God does not know the future, that God does not control the future, that God does not control all things. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that this God invites you to find him as your refuge. Psalm 62 says in verse 8, Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. He invites you. God is a refuge for us. Second, look at verses 4 through. Look at verse 4. God is not only a refuge who can be trusted. He is a warrior who will defend his people. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
This is a psalm of Zion. This is none other than the city of Jerusalem. It is the place where God's temple dwells. And notice the orderliness here, the in juxtaposition of the previous verses, the peace in juxtaposition to the cataclysmic events of nature. And God invites us to be glad, to, to experience His streams that make the city glad. I'm, I think of Psalm 36, 8, where it says, you give them from your river of your delights, the drink, to drink from your river of delights. For you, God, are the fountain of life. Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. But there are storm clouds on the horizon. Look at verse 6. Verse, it says there in the first part of verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. This is none other than the Assyrian threat in 701 B.C., the Assyrians, which were led by a king by the name of Sennacherib, had already conquered many of the surrounding nations. They have already, um, a, they've already taken over the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And so the, the drums of war are beating again, and they send a field commander to the southern kingdom of Judah, to Hezekiah, and the message is, surrender or else. And what does King Hezekiah do? The same thing that Martin Luther did. He went to God, his refuge. And we read the record of his prayer in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. God will defend his people. He is a warrior. And the message that Isaiah gave, the prophet Isaiah gave to Hezekiah is, that he would indeed do this, and that Sennacherib would return to Nineveh and perish. And we read about that in, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 and 36. You see, God will help her when morning dawns, verse 5. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at 
Nineveh where he perished immediately. Look at verse 7 in Psalm 46. It says that the Lord of hosts is with us. Literally, Yahweh Sabaoth, which means Lord of armies. He is the Lord of the Israel armies. He is the Lord of the angelic armies. When 185,000 perished, he sent the angel of the Lord who struck them down. Exodus 15, in the aftermath of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, they sang a song saying, God is a mighty warrior. Who is this mighty warrior? Luther in the great hymn that we sang says, Christ Jesus, it is He, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, His name, and from age to age the same, and He shall win the battle. God is a warrior who will defend His people. But even if in this life He does not deliver, He will vindicate his name in the life to come. I'm reminded of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to his gods, and they refuse. They, and he threatens them with destruction in the fiery furnace, and, and they say to him, our God is able to deliver us. He is able, but even if he does not deliver, we will not bow down. Not always in this life that we have that defense. But there's coming a day, a final day, where Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, is coming on a white horse with the armies of heaven. We read about that in Revelation chapter 19. And he will take his people to the dwelling place of God in which a river flows from his throne. He will establish a new heaven, new earth. He will vindicate his name. He will vanquish all evil. He will right every wrong. This is that city, that spiritual city of Jerusalem that Abraham looked. Not merely an earthly Jerusalem, but the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11. God is a refuge who can be trusted. He is a warrior who will defend his people. And finally, God is sovereign and will vindicate his name. Look at verses 8 and 9. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. James Montgomery Boyce, in writing on this, says that, in the days of the Roman Empire, a Roman medal was struck by Vespasian after completing his wars in Italy and other places, showing the goddess of peace holding an olive branch in one hand and a torch setting fire to heaps of army in the other. The olive branch represents a negotiated peace. The torch and destroyed armor represents and impose peace. Both are at peace, but it is the second that is being presented in Psalm 46, 8 through 9. Be still 
which is the first imperative in this passage. Be still and know that I am God. Is that an invitation to the contemplative life? I think the contemplative life is important to be still, to be silent, solitude, simplicity. But the passage here has more in mind a laying down of our arms, a surrender, an acknowledgement that God is a sovereign and victorious God, a king, the king of all kings. And he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. To say that God is exalted is to acknowledge that God is sovereign. To say that He is sovereign is to say that He is God. And to say that He is God is to say that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, Daniel 4.35. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor of nations, Psalm 22.28, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will vindicate his name. Or as Luther said, let God be God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he talks about Reformation Christianity, as we continue that theme this morning, he says that Reformed Christianity is the placing of the eternal God at the head of all things. I look at everything through its relation to the glory of God. I see God first and man far down the list. Brethren, if we live in sympathy with God, we delight to hear him say, I am God, and there is none else. Be still and know that I am God. God has established the terms of peace and surrender. And if you are here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, God established those terms at the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. And it is there where you find peace on the basis of faith. Romans 5.1 says, Wherefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you've never been made at peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, you are still at war with God. Be still. Surrender. Lay down your arms. And for us as believers, we want to control a lot. We want to control things. We need to be still. We need to lay down our arms. We need to run to the God who is our refuge and trust in him at all times. We need to trust in God who is our warrior who will defend his people. We need to trust in God who is sovereign and will vindicate his name. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
And everyone said, Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.